I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. fiction nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And we've been doing this since 2017. Is this is this true? It's our season three finale, this episode? Yeah. I had no idea. I knew it was sometime around in here. Anyway, um, so what do you think of this year that we're having right now. Can I say shit fest? Is that allowed? <laughs> I think a lot of people are probably calling this year a dystopia, you know, COVID-19, wildfires, hurricanes, enough already. And of course, this year, all of our troubles have both revealed and exacerbated existing inequalities like racial injustice and income inequality, both of which we talked about a bunch on this show. But there is a chance, or at least a hope, that uh, the old political stories we've t- we've been telling for the three years that we've been doing this podcast uh, might become different. Uh, for example, the accepted wisdom that the South belongs to Trump and to the conservative Republican Party and white political power is always going to control that region. Maybe that will be different. Well, I'm the one who grew up in the South, but you follow polling numbers as closely as anyone. So I know you don't think that's entirely true. Well. I mean, I'm not I don't know what's going to happen in the South, but I do know that I, I've been, you know, I, if you look at polls and trends in polls, you know, Maryland, which I don't know, do you you were from Maryland. Is that is that what you're calling the South? I guess. I mean, technically, it's below the Mason-Dixon line. I think these days it's the mid-Atlantic. <laughs> OK, well, I mean, that's a Democratic state. Virginia, solidly Democratic now, you know, um, and, and I think we're looking at whether or not you know, maybe the South, because of its diversity and its increasing demograph- change in demographics, might become a, um, a more democratic place. Um, so to, and, to, and also its literature is changing. So on today's episode, we'll talk about Southern literature and political realignments 
and increasing diversity in the South. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Michael Gora, the author of The Saddest Words, William Faulkner's Civil War. But first, we are excited to welcome novelist Maurice Carlos Ruffin to the podcast. Maurice is the author of We Cast a Shadow, which was published by One World Random House. The novel was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award. It was longlisted for the Penn America Open Book Prize, the Center for Fiction Prize, and the Aspen Words Literary Prize. It was also a New York Times editor's choice. Ruffin is the winner of several literary prizes, including the Iowa Review Award in Fiction and the William Faulkner William Wisdom Creative Writing Competition Award for Novel in Progress. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Oxford American, Garden and Gun, and Kenyon Review. A New Orleans native, Ruffin is professor of creative writing at Louisiana State University and the 2020-2021 John and Renee Grisham Writer-in-Residence at the University of Mississippi His next book, The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You, will be published by One World Random House in 2021. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Maurice, we really loved your book. What a cool and interesting premise. Your novel depicts a near future America in which dangers for people of color and specifically black people have gotten much, much worse. Um, And so it's sort of... It's set in an unnamed Southern college town and your narrator, an unnamed African-American father, goes to great, great lengths to try to save his mixed race son from American racism. So, I mean, just kind of the dial of everything just turned way up. How did you decide to imagine that version of the future through fiction? Yeah, you know, I think it's a few things. Um, When I started writing it, actually, the book was not going to be about that at all. It was more about economic issues and, and my narrator trying to help his parents survive in uh, Great Recession Era America. Um, but then Trayvon Martin was murdered. And that really made me revise my thinking on it. And I just wanted to explore what was going on, but I wanted to explore what was going on through the lens of where is it going to go next? Um, I think I understood intuitively that whenever there's a movement towards equality, there's always a, a reaction um, from, you know, quote unquote, conservative people. So we had Barack Obama in office. We had an era of, it, it seemed like improvement in race relations, things that sort of calmed down. And it just seemed like things were going to get a lot crazier, a lot a lot faster than in the past. And so I just speculated, well, if I flash forward a few decades, where is it going to go if we don't correct some of these issues? And, you know, frankly, as I was writing it, I was doing a lot of research on the way that minorities are treated in various countries around the world, whether it be, you know, places in Europe, places in Africa, places in Southeast Asia, and looking at how similar a lot of these things were, and, and even now, you know, after the book has been published, I'm thinking about uh, Cast by Isabel Wilkinson, when she talks about how the Nazis went to the American South to get ideas on how to oppress you know, Jewish people and Romani people in Germany. So it's all very, very connected. I'm assuming, in my, in my imagination of the book, the, the setting is like New Orleans, right? I mean, it's basically like a future New Orleans. Am I, am I wrong to think that? Uh, more or less, more or less. I think um, anybody who's familiar with the city will recognize it. But people who don't know New Orleans, they can see it as almost any American city, but it's definitely a southern city. Um, I was using some techniques from writers like Colson Whitehead, like he did in his book, The Intuitionist, and uh, uh, Lolita by Nabokov, where sometimes you don't really know where they're at or when they are. And, and that sort of adds to a sense of, wow, this could be happening right now or it could be happening 100 years from now. And I love that sort of effect in the story. The thing that's interesting about your book, which posits this like it's like a South where where racial attitudes have gone backwards, you know, it's um, uh, but the thing is that I saw I heard a really interesting podcast the other day from 538 where they were talking about the possibility 538, the sort of polling site that is run by Nate Silver, 
about the possibility that reliably progressive and democratic states in the upper Midwest, like Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan, are actually trending in the direction of the Republicans because the Republicans are advancing this, like, we only care about white people platform. And there are many more white people there, right? Whereas the South, which has been reliably Republican for many, many years, is actually becoming increasingly diverse. And so, like, the the, the directionality of the voting is tending Democrat there. And, and you have Virginia's already... A Democratic stronghold at this point, and North Carolina is kind of on the edge. Georgia almost elected Stacey Abrams. So I wonder where you think things are headed in the South right now, not not in your terrible future that you've imagined for us, but now, you know, as a as a voting block coming forward in this election. Well, you know, the thing about it is that everything is provisional. I think it is true that uh, the pandemic, for example, has accelerated the tendency of people to not work in offices. People can't go to skyscrapers. You know, I spent over a decade working as a lawyer in, in you know, on the 30th and 40th floors of various buildings. And some people are saying that now because you don't have to live in a city to make a living. People may go to suburbs and exurbs and, and they may go to rural areas like Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee. And we've already seen that with Florida somewhat, with Georgia somewhat, as you mentioned. And so it's possible that we may see another, another reversal where we've seen it in the past, where if you were, you know, a Republican in the Lincoln era, that meant you were for equal rights, for civil rights, right? And then it reversed between the 30s and the 60s. And by the time you get to the 1970s, if you were were Republican, you were for segregation. You like George Wallace. You like Nixon. So these things go back and forth. And these alignments are a part of this way that we Americans think. We're very oppositional. This is a nation that really likes the fact that when you go into court, often it's a winner-take-all system. and so the way I see it, I think that people are fighting back really hard. Um, I do have a slight worry that, you know, we are in this like second American Civil War where maybe you can't reconcile things. And we just decide, you know what, let's just like, uh, you know, leave the coast to the, to the blue folks and then take the entire middle part of the country and give it to the red folks. Um, but I can't say that, that, that that's going to happen. I think that we are good at compromise. The problem with, with some of our compromises, though, is that you get what happens in the book where we sort of give, give up so many rights that eventually there are no rights left for certain people, whether they are black folks or minorities or uh, queer people, you know, you name it. And I think that the real trick here is that even in the current election, you know, if, if you are anti-Trump, you're going to vote for Biden. Well, chances are Biden won't give the young left and the really far wing left what it wants, whether it's defunding police, um, whether it's, uh, you know, ensuring that voting rights are protected. And so if those people are feeling disenfranchised, we're kind of back where we started at. Um, and that's just the way, the way that things are here. It, it is a country where we're so um, hetero, uh, heterogeneous, where we have to keep on making these compromises, even if it means that some people don't have any of the rights of the mainstream part of America. One of the really enjoyable things about your book for me is all of the cool, subtle historical references and like really data-specific things. And I went and was sort of looking up... Um, current news coverage about things like Southern strategy, right, which is an was an official strategy of the Republican Party, which dates back to Nixon, the Nixon era, where they sort of articulated it and named it and were sort of like, no, we don't actually need the nation to come with us. Um, all we need is the South. All we need is the electoral votes um, of 11 Southern states. And I'm thinking here of a, a recent Paul Waldman column in the Washington Post where he was sort of like, you know, that worked for the Republican Party the last time around. And, and I don't I don't think that that's going to work this time. And I really, really hope that he's right. But I, I'm curious about like all of the it's, it's a very considering it's a speculative future. 
Like it's a remarkably like data in certain parts are these like data references that are very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned earlier, I think part of the project was to turn the temperature up to 11. And, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why people can debate whether it's truly a dystopian novel or not. Because in the one sense, you know, if you're one of the white characters in the novel, it's not dystopian for you for the most part, at least in your personal being. You're not being tracked in the same way as the black characters. So that literally, like every black character in this city is being tracked by like a surveillance van, like, like their own personal surveillance van. Well, it's like... It's like it's like Trump got what he wanted in the, this is kind of what the the I feel like the nationalist right would like America to be like in the future. Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, you know, um I finished the book before Trump was elected. I finished it in 16. So this was during the election. I think he had just won the Republican uh nomination and had the convention, but I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And even to the point where there's a character in the book running for mayor who sort of in my mind sounds like Rush Limbaugh, but he also sounds like Trump where he's like, you know, you know, take the immigrants and put their heads on stakes and yada, 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 all this sort of overblown rhetoric, which has become the norm. You know, it used to be the idea of the whistle, the, the sort of um, dog whistle politics. And now it's the megaphone politics where he literally says, hey, you know, all you white folks in the suburbs, we're going to keep the poor black folks minorities out. And so that now the subtext is just the text. And it shows you that people are willing to embrace that. He has not really suffered in the polls as a result of saying those things. Um, the polls have been remarkably stable. And so it tells you that people are now just kind of willing to be outwardly uh, racist and, and, and anti-black and anti-minority as much as possible and, and feeling no uh, side effects from that. I feel like your book does a really impressive and terrifying job of bringing those consequences home, at least for, I mean, for me, it was a little bit like reading The Handmaid's Tale, which is also set in sort of like a like a terrifyingly plausible near future. So I wonder if I could ask you to read a little bit from the book, um, there's a there's a passage that um, makes some of those references that I was talking about. Sure, I would love to. All right, so I'm going to read um, a portion of the book from, this is chapter 16 of the book, and uh, it's actually the most requested chapter, because I think that in this book, um, the narrator's doing a lot of things that are uh, debatable as to whether they're good ideas in order to protect his son from racism. And so this is the part where he sort of turns to, to the reader and explains himself. So I'll read this section. I am a unicorn. I can read and write. I have all my teeth. I've read Plato, Virginia Woolf, Nikki Giovanni, and Friend. I've never been to jail. I've voted in every election since I was 18 years old. I finished high school, I finished college, I finished law school. I paid my taxes. I don't have diabetes, high blood pressure, all the itis. If you randomly abduct a hundred black men from the streets of the city and deposit us into a gas chamber, I'll be the only one who fits that profile. I'll be the only one who survives. Now, is this because I'm better than the other 99? No, it's because I'm lucky. And I know I'm lucky. Somehow, the grinding effects of a world built to hurt me have not yet eliminated my every opportunity for a happy life, as is the case for so many of my brothers. The world is a centrifuge that patiently waits to separate my son Nigel from his basic human dignity. I don't have to tell you that this is an unjust planet. A dark-skinned child can expect a life of diminished light 
This is truth anywhere in the world and throughout most of human history. But let's stick to the home of the free. Place young Jamal on an all-white basketball team, and guess who will get ejected from the game more often for normal rambunctious behavior? Give a hiring manager a stack of applications. Let him choose between an equally justified Jamal, Jane, or Jonathan. See Jamal waiting at the unemployment office again. Now, admittedly, none of these examples are particularly shocking, and I fear that I risk insulting your intelligence, dear reader, but ride with me a while longer. See Jamal evicted from his apartment. See Jamal arrested for vagrancy. See Jamal mysteriously die in a transport van on the way to the city jail. A brief interlude of cursing the heavens resurrect Jamal with lightning, smoke, sparks, the smell of burning cocoa butter, put a toy gun in Jamal's hand in an open carry state. Wait for Jane or Jonathan to call the police due to a suspicious lurking black guy. See the cavalry show up and scalp Jamal. No questions asked. Jane is so heartbroken for the tragic misapprehension of the situation. She says over a pumpkin spice latte as Jonathan bites the tip off a double chocolate biscotti. I, myself, have a natural aversion to numbers and statistics as they can be manipulated by any reactionary with an agenda. But that doesn't change the objective fact that prospects for my people have devolved ever since my grandparents' time. Black women make 30 cents for every dollar a white man does, and 90% of black moms are single mothers. Unemployment among black males is the norm, not the exception, and 9 out of 10 brothers have done time. And virtually none of us black guys and dolls can vote since felons, and the children of felons need a voucher from an upstanding citizen to earn their voting pass. My white friend Jojo is my pass. None of that even takes into account the fact that every black person is a de facto enemy of the state. They used to call bringing every able-bodied black male to jail for questioning racial profiling. Now it's called excellent police work. Did I mention that blacks in most major cities live in fenced-in ghettos, just like where I grew up in the Tico? There may be beauty in my blackness and dignity in the struggle of my people. But I won't allow my son to live a life of diminished possibility. I see a constellation of opportunity that those of my ilk rarely travel to. I see my Nigel at the center of those stars. Thank you so much. Um, I find that passage just endlessly rich. And like your unnamed narrator, I have a natural aversion to numbers and statistics, but I couldn't help comparing the numbers in your book to our numbers now. Um, you know, he talks about, for example, black women making 30 cents for every dollar that a white man does. And today, I think that number is around 62 cents to the dollar. And all of the rest of the stats you cite, um, single black mothers, uh, incarcerated, incarceration rates for black men, uh, all of these stats are about as at least twice as bad as what we have now. And, and many of the ones that you have invented are way worse. And one thing you imagine there, you mentioned the, the vouchers and the restricted voting rights. And so you could read this as a grim prediction, or you could say if demographics in the South changes, you know, Whitney's mentioned, and people can vote, they won't let this happen. And I was thinking of Stacey Abrams' push to fight voter suppression, which of course postdates your finishing the book, as you mentioned. How did you research and think about these numbers and problems, and where do you think those voting rights are headed now? 
Yeah, I mean, there were so many things I, w- I was thinking about. So my editor at the time, uh, Victory Matsui, read the passage, an early version of the passage. And Victory said, maybe you can go a little bit farther. Like I had already inflated things by maybe 50% or so. And Victory said, no, you, you can push it. You can just like keep, like just max out and see how it feels to go as far as possible. And I, I think about the fact that so much of our life in America is about opportunity. So that, like I listen to conservatives do podcasts and radio shows, see what they're thinking and what they're talking about. And one thing they'll always say about women in particular is they'll say, well, you know, there's no disparity in pay between men and women. It's just women have different jobs. Their jobs pay less. That sort of thing. That ignores so many facts about people in the exact same job, about the way that they're treated in the jobs, about the opportunities for networking and career development and yada, 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 mentorship. Um, but I just kept thinking, okay, so it takes just a few moves to get to, get to these statistics. And then the scariest thing that I think about is the fact that even if people who believe in equal rights fight as hard as possible, you could have a situation like South Africa, where only 10% of the population is non-black. And they're running the show. They're owning the property. The laws are all twisted so that they have all the rights. And therefore, most of them are disenfranchised. And so I could imagine a scenario in America where, you know, if the current president wins again and he you know, declares martial law or they stack the Supreme Court so that it's like eight, you know, conservatives and like one liberal and they keep tearing apart uh, voting rights that people have to pay poll taxes even if they're not felons and yada, yada, yada. And so it's just, it's a, it's a short jump to that place because now what I see in the reaction of people who like the current president, they're all over America. It's not just Southerners. And the truth of the fact is, you know, I've learned more about, more about our history even in the time of like Lincoln, you had people in the North saying, you know, who gives a damn about blacks in the South, about these, these enslaved people? You know, that's not our problem. You know, don't affect my checkbook. Don't affect my safety and my sovereignty. So all those thoughts kind of went into how I factored in these statistics in this, this feature. The uh, pandemic and climate change have taken an intense and arguably unique economic toll on the South. We just, I was just looking at the footage of the rain in Florida. Um, including, you know, New Orleans, where you live. Um, personally, I blame conservatives for a lot of that. But it's also um, the people from areas that have been traditionally conservative are just sort of seem like they're doubling down on Trump rather than recognizing like, hey, this, this, you know, not not believing in climate change is really hurting us, you know. And, and the, the we're going to talk a little bit about Faulkner later on in this podcast. But one of Faulkner's interesting lines is, you know, that is, is that people will cling to that which has hurt them, you know, and that I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like white voters in the South, you know, what what is this block that will not change? Are there some I mean, obviously, there are some liberal white voters in the South. They're not every single person voting for Trump. Right. There is a coalition there that will work with uh, progressives. So I don't know if you could just talk about I'll talk about that a little bit. Well, I think a big part of it comes down to what we call values. Like I was listening to a podcast I was making the opposite argument. I never heard somebody talk about this. And they said, over generations, we've seen the Republicans since the 60s try and win back black voters. And even before that, you had Republicans during the um, during FDR's administration trying to get black voters to come on board. But they couldn't because the Democrats were offering all these uh, historic, we're going to help you have opportunity. We're going to you know, help you with health care and education and, 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 and job uh, you know, uh, laws that are designed to uh, uh, protect you. What they were saying is that even in the modern day America, 
Um, when Republicans reach out to, to black folks, what they miss is that the vast majority of black folks see Republicans as racist. They see them not standing up for equal rights. They see them on the side of all the worst tendencies of our society. I think the opposite is also true. I think that when white Southerners are asked about, well, you know, why are you voting for somebody like Trump? They'll say things like, well, it's the values of him. You know, he supports, um, uh, he's pro-life, for example. He is somebody who stands for the way that we had values back in the 50s, you know, making America great again, that sort of ideal. And he's not about all these strange things of giving rights to people who are LGBTQ or about you know, embracing people crossing the border and yada, yada, yada. But what they're not seeing in my mind is that you can be in pain as a result of Republican policies, which are not designed to help working class people at all uh, directly. Um, but you can also say, well, at least they're keeping down minorities. They're keeping down brown skinned people and black people. And as a result of that, I can never be at the bottom level of the, of the pyramid, as it were. And so I think in their mind, as long as that part of the equation is being upheld, they're fine with it. You know, they're thinking, hey, I, I got an OK job, usually not in the pandemic. And, you know, the black woman working in the exact same building as me or the same company is making, again, 62 cents to the dollar or whatever it is. But I'm doing great in comparison to her. So why would I want more than that? And I think that's a big part of how it comes down. It's this confluence of race and economics. So I noticed that on Twitter a few days ago, you wrote, we're going to look back and say 2020 was the best year because that's when we chose to make some changes. And I was really surprised and frankly delighted by your optimism because I really could use some optimism right now. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that and what changes you think we need to make and, and who you think is going to make them. Yeah. You know, look, it's just a quirk of my personality where on the one hand, I'm able to see the darkest things. Like maybe I'm a, I'm a goth in some ways. I can just see how ugly things can get very easily, but I'm also very optimistic I do believe that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. And I come from New Orleans, which is a very optimistic place. And you know, we've been destroyed a few times in our history. Um, we have a lot of bad racism and a lot of bad economic policies that affect us in terms of education and other things. Um, and my parents, I mean, just, you know, my dad passed years ago, but they, they both uh, have been and, and were such great optimistic people. It was always, it doesn't matter how bad it gets, keep your chin up, it's going to be all right. And I believe in that. I think that in America, the shining light for me this year has been a few things. The most obvious example is that with George Floyd, we had, to my understanding, for the very first time in history, worldwide protest. I'd never seen that. You'd seen protests in the South. You've seen them in America. You've seen them in London. You've seen them in other places in the world. But the entire world, you know, you had 50 states, I think 700 cities in, in, in America. You had Australia, Germany, Japan, all protesting on behalf of, of the rights of a person just to be alive and breathe. And it, as bad as it gets to people who are just pugnaciously against the rights of most people, there's always people willing to fight back. And it often comes from our youngest people. And it comes from people who are just, they have, they have lost that sense of possibility and hope. You know, you get a little bit older, a little bit gray-haired, lose some, lose some hair, you know, you get some wrinkles. You kind of go, this is just how it's going to be for the rest of our lives. But they don't accept that. Young people are always like, no, we're going to fight. We're going to fight. And I think that when you add that to demographic change, I think that when you factor in the, the, the point that um, we, we, we can see it all now because of video cameras, because of our online capabilities, because we can actually even track people trying to uh, affect our election like people in Russia and other things. We can see it all now. And so we, we've come to the point now where I think for, with the current president, like some of his supporters are just part of a cult, basically. It doesn't matter what he says. He can say, I want to I want to shoot half America in the face and they'll they'll go. Good plan. All right, let's do it. 
But they're, they're minority. They always have been minority. And I think that this year in particular, my hope is that we've seen what the effect of being somebody who only supports the rights of a few people and only thinks about money. I think it's incredible that the president, who is a germaphobe, he doesn't like germs at all, missed the calculation that if we just ignored the virus, it would shut the economy down. But then there's also the perverse effects of the stock market, which people, somebody once said it's the, the stock market is the, is the measure of rich folks' emotions. And so because they look into the future, they think, well, okay, it's fine. We're going to be fine. But the rest of America is having problems because of that. So I just think that all those things make me think about how these changes kind of have to happen. And we're not like one of these small countries like Belarus where if somebody takes over, we kind of go, well, okay, it's better than it was. I think that people will continue to fight to the last. I think people will continue to fight for rights. And people who've gained the right to marry, the right to have uh, freedom over the reproduction, right to not be murdered in the street, we won't give those rights up. We just will not do that. So uh, it may take some pain, but I think that it will be a, a good outcome overall for all of us. And that, that sort of mixing of feeling at times like there is this incredibly malign force on the land that has too much power, but also then, then you know, but compared with my day-to-day life in Kansas City, for instance, you know, we've had two really great African-American mayors in a row. One of them, the current mayor is a a friend of mine that I, like a guy I met when I went to speak to his high school English class when my first book came out. You know, he's a great guy. The The city is was super, super um, white supremacist city in the 80s when I was coming up, right? And and like the, all those stories have been told and are out now about how racial discrimination worked in the city in terms of the real estate market and all that stuff. And so the city is much more diverse now and, and like really much more exciting city and much more diverse. Not only that, we have many, you know, people from all over the world who live here, which wasn't happening when I was a kid. So that seems so optimistic. Then these two competing ideas are intention. I feel like partly, you know, the, the virulence of the response with the Trump administration is a recognition that actually they might be losing the battle here. It's like in Terminator 2, that old movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, spoiler alert, at the end... Uh, Arnold wins, and the bad Terminator is thrust into um, uh, a giant vat of molten steel, and he, he can like change shape. So he's like trying to get out of it, but he can't. To me, that's kind of what the sort of arch conservatives are dealing with right now. They're on their last legs. They really, they really, they really can't offer much in terms of like economic policy or actual policies to help most people in America. And so now it's all culture wars. It's all about church and guns and religion, and we see the corruption of it. You know, when when you Get to that point, and the NRA is like, like uh, you know, the vice president. He's like of, of the NRA is like buying suits for sixteen thousand bucks and like taking you know flights on private jets. I mean, what is he, Kanye West? Is he like like a rapper? I mean, who does he think he is? And that doesn't align with the values of their own people. And so it has to collapse in on itself, I think, and leave room for people who actually want to just have good lives for ourselves and our families, regardless of your religion, your skin color, your background, and so forth and so on. Speaking of movies and and popular entertainment, you know, we were, I was thinking of your book, you know, and Jordan Peele as a filmmaker who's become incredibly important. And Jordan Peele's like, what is he? He's got the, what is the new show he's got on HBO right now? Lovecraft Country, Lovecraft Country. Yeah. So when he takes a racist author and sort of reconfigures that, right, into an interesting way that that sort of like changes and, 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 neutralizes the negative parts of Lovecraft, right? But also using, you know, humor and satire to talk about racial trauma in America. Um, 
I wonder if you could just talk about that moment in black Southern literature. We're also talking about, you know, new the New South as in Southern literature is a new thing, right? And you're an example of that, right? So I wonder if you could talk about the movement of, the, of Southern literature now to be more diverse. I feel like I came here at the right time. Like I came to earth, I had my years of development to becoming a writer. And I'm so privileged to be in a world in which like my posse, my team, my vendors, my X-Men, whatever you want to call them, is people like Jessamyn Ward, uh, Sarah Broom, who wrote The Yellow House and won the National Book Award. It's like Jessamyn uh, uh, did, uh, I got K.S.A. Lehman. Um, I mean, there's just so many writers out there doing such great work. There's Margaret Wilkinson Sexton, who came from New Orleans, but now she lives in California. And so I can just look around and I can feel this presence of like-minded souls. And I think that we've evolved to the point where any story is possible. You know, there was a time where basically the way it was set up is that we had maybe one writer per generation who got like a real shot. So you had Richard Wright, you know, and he's after we ignored uh, Zora Neale Hurston in her own lifetime for the most part. Then we had Ralph Ellison, who's like the man for 15 years off of one book. You know, then you kind of have this sort of confluence of people like Nikki Giovanni, then Toni Morrison takes over for about 20 years or so. And now in the past 20 years, you can almost find somebody for each year, almost. And there's still some work to be done because there are some some sort of limitations on the way books by black authors are marketed and the expectations of them, like how big the market is for them. But I think that shows like Lovecraft Country and, and uh, Watchmen and work by people like Jordan Peele, who's, he's just a genius. I mean, he's just a freaking genius. You know, um, uh, Boots Riley, who made uh, Sorry to Bother You. Um, I think we're seeing that you can tell stories that come from all kinds of angles and try things that are as diverse as the mainstream market. Because it was, it was so unfair that to have a black film, either it was just sort of like commercial, like romantic, you know, rom-com type thing, um, or it was just like, you know, this sort of tale of suffering. You know, we're going to show some slavery or some 1930s scenes and then it's over. Where now you get everything. And me, in my own writing, I feel like I have the right to do that myself. My short story collection will have a great diversity of types of stories. And I look also to people like uh, the Feast of Thompson Spire and... Uh, Rian Amakar Scott and others who just have been so adventurous. Jamel Brinkley, for example, just trying all sorts of things that I had seen done, but never from black writers. And I'm just, I'm just very fortunate. Um, I have been watching Lovecraft Country and would watch it every day if it, there would be a new episode. I just love it. Um, and yeah, I mean, listening to you talk, you're describing this wonderful posse writers, um, so many of whose work I love and value. And there were... I mean, obviously this was also there all along. And then there were all of the work that must have, that we didn't see and didn't have access to. And I think also I really am happy to see the kind of chicken and egg loop of certain kinds of marketing be broken where the narrative was that mainstream audiences, you know, you're talking about um, this sort of work um, being like the mainstream. I think that this sort of work is the mainstream now too, right? Like that there's this sort of constant underestimation of everyone else as readers and viewers and audience that they couldn't handle the work, couldn't appreciate it, wouldn't get the references. And actually, um, you know, audiences are smarter than that and deserve better and richer and more diverse work. Um, so speaking of this great pantheon of, of Black Southern writers, you're the 2020-2021 Grisham writer in residence. And Randall Keenan was a Grisham writer in residence in the late 90s. And sadly, Keenan, who was one of the most acclaimed black gay writers in the nation, passed away last month. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the place that his work holds in this canon. Yeah, you know, for Randall, it's so sad to see him pass. Um, 
And to, I mean, to me, I could have seen him being around for 30 or 40 or 50 more years just producing great work. Um, I know most about him through my work at Bona, which is an organization that puts on a workshop each summer and sometimes year round. Um, he was involved in that organization, gave a lot of his time and energy to it. And the thing that I think that affects me most about his passing is that I've not heard a negative word about him. And I've seen how he affected people who didn't even know him personally, how his work gave them the strength to produce their own work. And to me, that's the measure of a person. I think so often when people are successful in the arts, whether it be in film or you know uh, music, we kind of tear our heroes down. And it's a rare hero who can kind of avoid being torn down. Randall was never torn down. Randall's work was wonderful. He, as a man, he was a lovely, a lovely person. Um, and I, I just think that he gave room some, for so many writers, particularly gay male black writers, to come in and, and just be themselves. And you know, I'd be curious to know from some of those writers how they talk about him. Um, like, I'm not sure if my friend Jericho Brown knows him very well, but Jericho's being and his writing is so powerful. And I think about Randall King when I think about Jericho as well. So I just, I'm just thankful he was here. You know, we don't get to have anybody forever. And he's gone now, but he's not gone. Because one of the things about art is that art does sustain longer than a lot of things in this world sustains. Maurice, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Um, it's been a huge pleasure. The pleasure was all mine. Y'all take care, be safe, and vote. Thank you. And in addition to voting, we would encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of We Cast a Shadow, which is available now at an independent bookstore near you. And you can follow Maurice on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep up on his latest projects. Next up, we're joined by Michael Gora. Michael is the author of Portrait of a Novel, Henry James and the Making of an American Masterpiece, which is a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Biography. The Bells in Their Silence travels through Germany after Empire, Scott Naipaul Rushdie, and the English novel at mid-century. He's received a Guggenheim Fellowship, two fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and a National Book Critics Circle Award for his work as a reviewer. His essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement, The Atlantic, and the New York Times Book Review. He's the Mary Augusta Jordan Professor of English Language and Literature at Smith, and his latest book is The Saddest Words, William Faulkner's Civil War. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for having me. So the question we're asking in this episode is, will the South ever be new, both politically and in literature? And on the one hand, we have the very familiar white supremacists who marched in Charlottesville in 2017. But on the other, Stacey Abrams nearly won her race for Senate in 2018, and Virginia is reliably blue, and Georgia and North Carolina seem like they could be headed that way. So what would the author of the phrase, the past is never dead, it's not even past, think about today's South? That's a wonderful question. Um, you know, I, I think there's one thing, honestly, I can say he would be horrified by, and that's freeways. <laughs> freeways, strip malls, um, shopping centers, Walmarts, all of that. He wouldn't like any of that. Um, uh, he, he didn't like stores in general. Um, but, you know, I've been, I've, I, was, I was thinking about this in response to your question, and, and Faulkner died right before the University of Mississippi was integrated. 
right before James Meredith became the first black student at the University of Mississippi. And during the riots that were around that, one of his nephews was in the National Guard trying to ensure that uh, Meredith was allowed to enroll. One of his nephews was on the other side of the white rioters who were trying to keep Meredith from enrolling. Faulkner, um, in the 50s, he was worried that basically white people would kill any black person who tried to enroll at the South's flagship universities. He thought they should be integrated, but he was afraid of the reaction. So his, his response to to the events was to say, go slow. And of course, that was not an answer. That was not an answer. You can't go slow. Uh, and James Baldwin rightly took him to task for that. I do think Faulkner would like seeing the way in which the South has in some large measure integrated the enrollment of black students at universities, um, a large black middle class in Atlanta. I, I like to think I like to think he would like that. On the other hand, I would also say he would not be at all surprised by that that, that white supremacist riot in Charlottesville. Um, he would not be surprised at that. I don't think he'd be surprised by the rise of the militia movement. Um, he had an understanding uh, of that sort of deep-seated racial violence in the people he'd grown up with, in the white people he'd grown up with. Um, he was not sympathetic to it, but he, he knew it, he understood it. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he would be surprised by that. Uh, I, you know, I'm, in some ways, in some ways, we, we can't really say what he would think. We'd have to put him, uh, abstract him completely from his time, put him down in our time. It's 60 years since he died. Um, but I think in terms of particular phenomena, we might be able, we, we might be able to say. Um, he would not be, I think he would be surprised, honestly, at the degree of integration that the South has achieved. He would not be surprised at the at our current moment, at the backlash, at the backlash, that's the backlash against that. Yeah, I don't think he'd be surprised at that at all. Not not the man who wrote who wrote that horrifying lynching story, Dry September. That was the first story that I ever read about lynching, uh, and that yeah. I, I didn't really didn't it, we didn't it's not something we talked about in my family. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, growing up in Kansas City, that was an incredibly powerful story that taught me I've never forgotten it. Yeah, no, no, that 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 that's a scary story because because you get a sense of of how one word can set people off in, in can set people off, can make things happen that you don't anticipate. Uh, I, I think I think it's utterly, utterly chilling. It's still useful for understanding how police killings are happening now today, I think. Exactly. No, no, exactly. There's another moment in in uh, light in August that I've, I've written about a little bit for uh, about police violence and about the African-American suspicion of the police where where the police are investigating a murder and the sheriff says to the deputy go get me an n-word anyone will do because they're just going to beat out beat out they don't expect a confession from him they're not they don't think that the man they pick up is has done it but they think he will know something and the police are willing to beat it out of him to beat that knowledge out of him faulkner has has a sort of uncanny understanding of the way that works so here is my high school copy of The Unvanquished. This is the first Faulkner novel that I read. I colored in the title, as you can see. It's falling apart. Um, and I went on ahead to read everything because I was moved by him as a writer. Uh, 
But in the book I'm working on now, I have a scene in which a young black high school student in the 80s is reading that book. And I'm trying to imagine what it, what it was like, would be like for him and how different it was for, would have been for me, you know. Um, it's, it's one of the few books that Faulkner set during the Civil War. So I thought that we should start there and talk about how and why you decided to write about Faulkner's relationship to that war, because that's what your book is about. Um, and what can that relationship tell us about the South or America in general today? Right. Okay. Well, you know, in some ways, I, I started out to write a book about the Civil War. Uh, not so much about Faulkner, not, not in its first conception. Very quickly, it became about Faulkner. I was living in Paris briefly. Uh, I'm an academic. I was on sabbatical. I'll confess it was good. Um, but um, it was in 2010. I was hearing news about the Tea Party. I was reading the disunion column in the New York Times, which followed the course of the war week by week. And I started, as I was reading Disunion and reading the news about the Tea Party, I started to see all kinds of connections and echoes, as if that time and ours were, were sort of fusing together, which is in a way a very Faulknerian thought. And I thought most of my scholarly works before that had been about British things, post-colonial things. Uh, even when I was writing about James, I was interested in James as a cosmopolitan figure. But it made me it made me more interested in, in, in America and in writing. I, want, I realized I wanted to write as an American about America. And I, I, I sort of saw that as an act of, of, of citizenship as much as of scholarship. So the Civil War was the obvious point for that. But I thought, how, how can I organize that thing? I, and also, what do I know? Well, I mean, you're, you're a Yankee. You know, we have I'm to, a Yankee. We're have to admit that up front here. I am a Yankee. I am a Yankee. <laughs> I, have, I have the full panoply of Yankee prejudices. But I had always been reading Faulkner. I've been reading Faulkner since since basically the moment I graduated from college and was was given as I lay dying to, um, to teach at summer school as a student teacher. And I thought, well, I, I love Faulkner. And I thought, well, I could put those two together. And then I began to realize that the Civil War seemed to determine everything in Faulkner's world, but he rarely writes about it directly. And, and that became that became a sort of problem to crack, a kind of interesting nut to crack. So I set out to see what I could find. And what it meant that he didn't always write about the war directly. And I think it's, he writes much more about the war's memory as if he can't look at it directly. Now, now the, the book you mentioned, The Unvanquished, is, is the exception to that. There are a set of stories set during the war and during Reconstruction. Um, he wrote them as pot boilers while he was also working on Absalom Absalom. Uh, that is, he knew, he knew this was a subject that would be popular with the Saturday Evening Post. And so he set to work to write them, but then, of course, he painstakingly revised them. Uh, and as you said, there, there, are two, there are two boys in, the, in that novel. Uh, they start, the book starts when they're 12. There's a white boy and there's a black boy, Bayard and Ringo. Ringo is short for Marengo after the, after the Napoleonic battle. Um, Ringo is one of the Sartorist family slaves uh, owned by Bayard's father. The Faulkner is very careful to uh, give him a father, uh, you know, an, another enslaved man as a father, so that we don't think that actually these two boys might be brothers. Ringo's a complicated character because, uh, you know, he starts in one of, the, one of those early stories, he starts and seems like a figure of comic relief. He speaks in dialect, Bayard doesn't. Um, he makes mistakes that allow us to laugh at him a little bit. 
On the other hand, Bayard's father says, you know, Ringo's smarter than you are. Ringo's smarter than you are. And Ringo has an independent mind. He has a good business mind. He comes up with all kinds of interesting ideas. He does totally identify with the Sartre's family. So much so that he's he's willing to see the Yankees as the enemy. Um, he says at one point early in the book, he says, Colonel Sherman's coming is going to set us all free. And then he's not certain who the we is that's going to be set free. Is Sherman going to set Bayard free? Uh, or who, just who does he mean? Late in the book, though, Bayard uh, of Ringo. Faulkner gives Ringo this extraordinary moment of prescience. Reconstruction is starting and also the Southern, the white Southern backlash to Reconstruction, uh, which is going to produce terrible things. It's going to lead to lynchings and stuffing of ballot boxes and eventually the denial of the, the constitutional right to vote for black men. And Ringo looks around and he says, this war ain't over. It's just getting started good. And none of the white characters have that kind of prescience. Um, the other thing that's always struck me as curious about Faulkner, given that he carried so many of his characters over from book to book uh, and let plot lines spill over from book to book. And, and certainly he does that with Bayard Sartorus and with, with Bayard's father, Colonel Sartorus. He doesn't carry Ringo anywhere else. Ringo stays in that book. And I think it's I think that really is because he didn't want to imagine what this independent, intelligent young black man, what the kind of life he would have to face in Mississippi as an adult man. Would he stay on the Sartorist plantation as a sort of companion, servant, dependent? Would he move away? Would he if he stepped out of the Sartorus orbit, would he run into violence from white people who wouldn't stomach his independence? Would he have to go north? I think that was a place that Faulkner's imagination didn't want to go. So that gets us into a very contemporary discussion of yeah. who should write about whom. And both right. Ellison and Toni Morrison have written about Faulkner's successes and failures and writing about black characters. But, but generally, they seem to prefer his attempt to say the approach of Hemingway or Fitzgerald who just kind of pretend that race is not a thing. And I'm assuming that you think Faulkner's engagement with black and native American characters is important because otherwise this book wouldn't exist. But how do you evaluate what he did? This is one of those questions where, where you, you feel that uh, no matter what you say, you're going to have to make exceptions. I think some of Faulkner's early black characters in, in his, in his early fiction, um, they are uncomfortably close. I won't say to stereotype, but to type. To type, they're conventional. They're, 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 they're conventional figures. They're mostly servants. Um, and then over the course of his career, he, he gets better at it. He starts seeing them more and more as individuals. I will say that from the start of his career, he has an uncanny ear for dialogue. Uh, his none of his characters really talk alike, and that's true. That, that that's as much true of his black characters as of his white characters. Now the question you've asked though has 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 has, has larger implications. Um, should he is he entitled to write about this material? Um, 
you know, I've heard of young of young white writers now who are incredibly reluctant to write about black characters because because they're might be slammed about it. I've also heard of black writers who are leery of writing about white characters. Um, my sense is that there, there, there are no rules. Everything depends on execution, on, on, on how you do it. I will say that, that um, sure, no young white writer today would write about black people in the same way that Faulkner wrote about them. No, uh, I mean, I can imagine, uh, you know, a, a kind of throwback writer who, who might do it. Uh, or who is writing a historical novel who might. But, but if we're writing, you know, Faulkner writing in 1930 about black people in 1930, nobody writing in 2020 is going to write it in quite, in, in quite, that, in quite that way. Um, what I will say, though, is that the ability to imagine, to step into another experience is part and parcel of what fiction is about. Um, uh, that you have to be able to imagine otherness. Now, you have to do it well, you have to do it sensitively, you have to be aware of the limits of your own knowledge. Um, but if, say, a white writer were not going to let him, him or herself use black characters, that would in some ways amount to an act of segregation as complete as anything, more complete than anything the Jim Crow South ever dreamed of. The writer, that writer would be writing about an all-white world, and we would know that that world is not true to our own. Now, now ha having, having, having said that, I, I, I would add other things. Um, Faulkner will allow himself in some places to enter the consciousness of his black characters, when he does so, he uses a rather 19th century mode of, of interiorization. Uh, when he writes about uh, Lucas Beecham in, uh, in Intruder in the Dust, for example, or in Go Down Moses, um, it's almost like you're reading George Eliot. He's you know, stepping in in that way. He's not doing the full-blown stream of consciousness that, that, that he did for his white characters in The Sound of the Fury and His Eye Lay Dying. And... I think that, that that someplace, that second by second pulse of consciousness, I think Faulkner not doing that is, is in a way a tacit recognition of his own limitations. That he didn't feel he could do that. Uh, but a more conventional narration, which he also uses on many of his white characters, especially later in his career, that he thought he could do. Um, I guess the exception here would be Joe Christmas in Light in August the character who may or may not be black, who doesn't know, who believes that he may be based on stories he's heard in the orphanage where he grew up. I still love that. That's one of my favorite books. And, and my first novel structurally is patterned very much like uh, Light in August, just in terms of that long flashback in the middle. Um, I wonder if you're familiar with an essay that we've talked about on the show before called uh, 20th Century Fiction and the Black Mask of Humanity, which is by... Ralph Ellison, it's from his early collection, Shadow and Act, and he talks a lot about Faulkner and Faulkner's mixed record in writing about these characters in the way that you do. But I think he is pushing white writers in that essay, not to define what it means to be black. He says that's for black writers, right? But, right, but to right. not ignore this issue and that it's crucial yeah. in American fiction and that you have to engage with it in some way. He, he, you have to engage with it just as Ellison had to engage with white characters. Um, 
you know, a white writer is probably not now going to make black, put black characters at the very center of, of, of the narrative, but they should be there. So just to go back to the unvanquished for a second, um, Colonel John Sartoris in that novel is a crucial figure um, and also in the mythos of Yokno Patawa County. Um, I've never actually had to say that aloud before. So um, he's also. Usually people leave that to me. How did I do? Not bad. He's saying Sartoris, and I've always said Sartoris, and I think you should stick with Sartoris for. You know, you know, I, I, I always said Sartoris when I first read it, and then I went down to Mississippi, and the people, the people at the Faulkner Conference in in Oxford, uh, say Sartoris. Mm. Um, you know, Too bad uh, for them. I'm not changing. I know. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I've been told that that Sartoris is in effect my Yankee pronunciation, and and uh, and uh, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna go with 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 the local version. Um, I guess earlier in the show we were debating whether I I grew up in Maryland. Is Maryland the South? Anyway, TBD. But yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Colonel is based on Faulkner's great grandfather, and I wondered if you could read a passage from the book about him. Sure. Okay. One of the first characters he invented for his mythical land was a Mississippi planter called John Sartorus. He appeared in Flags in the Dust, the initial book in the Yoknipatafa cycle, and later in The Unvanquished, a dashing Confederate cavalry commander whose name checked in a dozen other works as well. I say appeared, but Faulkner set Flags in the Dust in 1919, and Sartorus has been dead for more than 40 years by then. Dead but always present in the minds of his survivors and indeed in the memory of Yoknipatawpha County as a whole. Anyone in Jefferson could tell you his story. He came out from South Carolina as a young man in the 1840s. He bought land and slaves and built a house four miles north of Jefferson's Courthouse Square. A widower with one son whom he christened Bayard, lifting the chivalric name out of Walter Scott. By 1861, he had become a power in the county and the state alike and rich enough when secession came not only to organize and lead the, the region's first regiment of Confederate volunteers, but also to pay for it. He took his soldiers north, and there his fictional regiment became a part of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. The novelist imagined him as both courageous and competent, but Faulkner also made him arrogant, a man quick to let other people know what he thought of him. Volunteer regiments on both sides of the war elected their own officers. Sartorus had quickly grown unpopular, and in 1862 he was voted out of his colonelcy and took himself back home. This time he raised a body of irregular cavalry and kept it out west. His men would form up for a raid and then disappear back to their farms. Not fighting so much as stealing horses and nipping at the edges of General Grant's advancing army, as the Yankees tried to figure out the best way to take the riverfront citadel of Vicksburg. Sartorus made himself a nuisance with a price on his head, and after one such raid, he began to argue with his best horse thief, Zeb Fothergill, about the merits of the last mount they'd lifted from the Union Army. And so they decided to race. There was a bridge a mile ahead on the far side of a rise, and the two men left the rest of the troop behind and lit out, neck and neck at first, and out of sight in a minute. The soldiers could see their dust in the distance, however, and after a bit they saw two separate patches of it and knew that the colonel was going to win. Then he disappeared, dropping down to the river, and when his soldiers caught up, they found that he had captured a whole company of Yankee cavalry all by himself. Here's how it happened. 
The colonel came up over the crest and was in the middle of an enemy camp before he even saw it, riding down between the cook fires where the soldiers were gathered, with their horses picketed and their stacked rifles a dozen yards away. There was no time to turn back, but he probably wouldn't have even if there had been, and the Federals were just as startled as he was. So Sartorius pulled his pistols and started to yell, telling his troops who hadn't yet arrived to surround the Yankees in front of him, threatening to shoot anyone who moved while continuing to move himself pacing his horse through the fires and spreading as much confusion as he could. Then Fothergill rode up, and a few minutes later the rest of Sartorius' band. Still, there were too many prisoners to handle, too many to march off to a Confederate stockade. Instead, the colonel's men held the disarmed Yankees close all day, and when night fell, put a guard on the horses, while pretending to watch over the Union troops as well, trying not to laugh as Sartorius allowed them in ones and twos to slip off into the dark. That story, that version of the story, can be found in a novel that itself exists in two versions, one that Faulkner wrote as Flags in the Dust, and then published in a much abbreviated form as Sartorius. The novel appeared in its original form only in 1973, a decade after the novelist's death. I'll have more to say about that later in considering the origins of Faulkner's posted stamp of ground. But for the moment, I'll stick with the story, or rather with the way the story is told. John Sartorus might loom over its every page, but Flags in the Dust is not precisely a Civil War novel. Faulkner splits its interest between two of the colonel's descendants, each named Baird. One is the colonel's son, a banker and now himself an old man. The other is the banker's grandson. Young Baird has newly returned from France, having flown World War I fighter planes in an international squadron, and in peacetime has found nothing better to do than to drive fast and drunk over Yoknipatov's bumpy roads, trying to kiss the wheels of the wagons he passes. So Flags in the Dust is at once a lost cause and a lost generation novel, in which the seeming purpose and heroism of the Confederate past squats over an apparently meaningless present, Yet how much, really, does the past have to offer? The story of the colonel's great deed comes to us through the mouth of his last surviving trooper. Old Man Falls is an object of Baird's, Old Baird's Charity, who every few months comes visiting, fetching the odor and spirit of the dead man into that room where the dead man's son sat. The banker is always good for some tobacco and a bit of cash. And he also provides a reliable audience for the stories that the soldier doesn't so much tell as tell over. Stories forever retold and repeated. Late in the novel, the old man calls up the tale of the horse race once more, reliving those gallant, pinch-belly days. But this time Baird has a question. He shakes the ash from his cigar and asks, What the devil were you folks fighting about, anyhow? Thank you so much. We were just talking to Maurice Carlos Ruffin, and in his novel, we cast a shadow, the main character who's black and his wife, who's white, go on a tour of an old plantation in some future version of the South. And the tour guide spent a whole lot of time pretending that slavery had nothing to do with the Civil War. Um, so what does the last question in your reading tell us about Faulkner's yeah. relationship to slavery and the lost cause of the Civil War? Right. So yeah, I can take that a lot of different ways. Um, you know, in, in, in the book itself, I, I focus as much on, on the answer that Old Man Falls gives to Baird. He says, Baird, damned if I ever did know. 
And you can hear that in a lot of ways that, that, you know, that the cliche that it was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight, that private soldiers like, like uh, Old Man Falls didn't really know what they were fighting for, that they were just went because their friends were going or because it was, it was local people demanded it and expected it. On the other hand, um, a lot of social history has suggested that most Civil War soldiers did indeed have a very good understanding of what they were fighting about. Um, you know, they, they, they may have had many different reasons for fighting, but, but they knew what the war was about. Now, to focus here, though, on, on Bayard's question, what the devil were you fighting about? I want to think here about the fact that he's asking that question in 1919. And in 1919, uh, in Civil War historiography of the period, that was, a, that was a moment when slavery as a cause of the war was played down. Uh, that wasn't what people were thinking about. There were, there were, you know, the progressive historians were beginning to argue that, that slavery was a kind of local epiphenomena on top of the, the great conflict between agriculture and industry. Uh, people were, were saying that, that the war had been caused because the politicians were inept, that, that it's almost as if they, they didn't want at that point to believe that slavery had counted all that much. It's almost like you're just you're describing like a the, the way scholarship at the time started to slowly erase the idea of slavery from exactly. the historical exactly. record. Exactly. Now, 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 one of the reasons for that, of course, is is uh, what I would call Confederate historiography, which over time came to claim that slavery had not been the cause of the war, that it was you know, a sectional dispute over the tariff or over states' rights or, you know, just name it. Of course, the, the thing is, the only state's right that anybody was ever willing to die for was the right to hold slaves. Um, you know, so, so you, if, you know, the, 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 the Confederate historiography, uh, and I have a student in my class now from Texas who says that they still get that line in her public high school in Texas. Well, I mean, that's what's happening today. People still it's don't want to admit yeah, that, yeah, you yeah. know. And I so I feel like, you know, one of the reasons that I love that I, that I like your book is that people don't realize what criticism can do, just English criticism. And you've taken us from this Faulkner's evasive sort of use of that question in there leads into this discussion of how America was evading that question at that time. And I think it's really fascinating and people should read and pay attention. Ex ex exactly. That people at that moment, they no longer really know what it's about because, well, if it's just about states' rights, how come so many people got killed? If it's just about, you know, an argument over that or over tax policy, how come so many people got killed and the whole region was was ruined? If if you if you you know, and Baird of course knows better. Baird was a boy during the Civil War, but it's almost as if he's forgotten too. Um, that that or you know, wants the, to forget or needs to forget or wants or, to forget. You know, yeah. wants to erase that just as much as everybody else does. Exactly, exactly. That, that, that that's well said. That that it yeah. It's, if it has to be slavery, and yet they don't want to admit that it's slavery because. They feel guilty about slavery. They do feel guilty about slavery, and and you will find, uh, you'll find all kinds of of um, you know southern uh, you know well-off southerners in the around 1900 who say you know I'm I'm glad that slavery's gone. 
uh, whether we believe them or not. That becomes the party line. Say, I'm glad that it's gone. But that's not what the war was about. Well, we're not going to have time to talk about this, but I will encourage readers also that you have a really good discussion of the monuments that were put up during this time and, and their relationship to this sort of forgetting and also to enforcing racial segregation and white supremacy. But right now, since our issue, this episode is about the New South, right? And whether the South will ever be new. You know, Faulkner was the canonical image of the Southern writer. If you wanted to draw a cartoon for a long time, him and his pipe and his little dogs and his restored plantation home, his language even was was what Southern writing was, right? And, and that meant Southern writing was also white. Um, but today, Southern writers are so much more diverse, more urban. I think of Maurice, who we just who we have on right before you on the show, but also there's so many other examples. You know, Jessman Ward, who he mentioned as well, Donald Glover, who created the television show Atlanta, which I think of as a work of Southern literature. How is Faulkner's legacy connected to, or maybe even being interpreted by, current Southern writing? I have to say, I hate the pipe. I, I hate <laughs> Faulkner's pipe. And, well, he's and kind of dressing up and playing a role. He was a faker. He is. He he was a, in that way. He was a faker all his life. He pretended to have been in World War One fighter pilot. Um, but but I hate the pipe because usually the pictures of him with the pipe are when when he's old. And I like I like the pictures from the thirties when when he looks when when he's at his best as a as a writer instead of posing as as the grand man. Um, but. Um, you know, I was thinking uh, with this, especially in relation to Jasmine Ward. Um, Salvage the Bones, the main character in Salvage the Bones, has been reading As I Lay Dying in school. And, you know, that cuts a couple of ways. Um, it's a school text, which means it's compulsory. It's maybe a little old-fashioned. Uh, something you have to deal with, something that is presented as being good for you, and therefore it's something you resent. Certainly, I resented a lot of the school texts I got. On the other hand, it's a school text, which means it's formative. It's both those things. It's it's this influence that is there that you have to acknowledge, but you also have to fight against and in some ways not like or not like too much. You have to rebel against it. You have to push against it in order to find your own voice. And, and Faulkner's voice, Faulkner's voice and is so powerful that I think for a long time, a lot of Southern writers were not really able to resist that voice. I, I was thinking about this question also, um, you know, as I said earlier, it's 60 years since he died. There's more time that separates us from his death and he was not at his best when he died. Uh, it's almost a century since his best works. Uh, the 1930s. But that's a lot more time, say, than there was between Dickens and Virginia Woolf. Uh, you know, Dickens dies 1870, so the Lighthouse comes out in 1927. You know, and, and, and Woolf is pushing all the time against the Victorians. She's establishing her own identity, her own self. She's making the novel look radically different than the novels that her father's and her father's friends wrote and read. Um, I think the same thing is 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 true now with with in in, in southern literature, um, that you know of course it's going to be different, uh, and it's going to be all this better for being different. You wouldn't want imitation Faulkner now. Uh, imitation Faulkner would be a kind of parody thing. But at the same time, it's an influence you have to acknowledge and then resist it. Now, the particular things that I think I think I think stick with people. 
Faulkner's exploration of sort of the borders between races uh, with a character like Joe Christmas, for example, or some of the tensions and conflicts between between races and sometimes between relatives who are of what would what you know the law would call different races at that point uh the tensions there i think those are still live issues that writers will want to work on that is the issues faulkner touches on are ones that 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 that, that are still are still very very much present writers will deal with them in different ways than he did at the same time though that that sense that you started the phrase you started with the past isn't dead, it's not even past. That that line, which is usually quoted out of context, I have to say, um, uh, that line seems very much at the heart of Southern fiction still. Those words crystallize um, a sense of the inescapability of the past. Uh, that you, you can't, you know, like Huck Finn, you can't light out for the territory. Huck thinks he can get away and light out for the territory. Um, I don't think any Southern writer uh, now believes that. That South, that past, that history is, is with you. You can't sever yourself from that. And I think Faulkner voices that in a way that, that does remain formative and valuable. Um, I think it should be formative and valuable for the country as a whole and not just for the South. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. And I would be remiss if I did not say that my mom is a Smith graduate and I have her a copy of Whitman's Leaves of Grass, speaking of a Civil War writer, which she read and marked up while in English class at Smith. Uh-huh. I bet I know who she took the class with, who's <laughs> now long retired, but, but, but yeah, that's great. Thank you. Listeners, don't forget to pick up a copy of Michael's new book, The Saddest Words, William Faulkner's Civil War, available now at an independent bookstore near you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This episode was produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman, and we want to thank our University of Missouri-Kansas City interns Mary Henn and Emily Stanley for their work on this episode. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel or at 